But we want to dive into Scripture today. Today's message is entitled, Gideon and the Downfall of Israel. And I pray that the Holy Spirit would convict our hearts today. And I invite you to just bow your heads with me as we begin. Father in heaven, thank you so much for being a God that is not content with leaving us the way that we are. Thank you that you are a God that has the ability and willingness to transform our characters. And Father, we desire to be transformed more and more into the image of Jesus. And I pray that as we open up the pages of Scripture, that you would be present. I pray that as we read the Bible, that the Bible would read us, that it would convict us of things in our hearts and minds and lives that need to be surrendered to you. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus and all of God's people said, amen, amen. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Judges. The book of Judges. What book did I say? Judges. Now, Judges probably is one of the most discouraging books in all of Scripture. Would you agree, church family? It is not a, uh, a good nighttime child uh, bedtime stories. Uh, as you read the book of Judges, it is very tempting to get discouraged. Judges was a low point in the history of Israel. When you read the book of Joshua, there's exciting stories about how the Israelites were conquering new places and new lands that God had asked them to conquer. But once those places had been conquered, they stopped conquering. And they did not fulfill the command that God had asked them, which is to keep on conquering. They got content with what they had been given and the gifts that God had given them. And as they stopped Going and conquering new places, problems begin to set into Israel. And isn't that a good lesson for us? When we become complacent as Christians, when we fall asleep as Seventh-day Adventists, and, and we come into a place of the Laodicean mindset and condition, we stop conquering new souls for Jesus, we become complacent and problems start happening in our lives as well. And we see here in the book of Judges, that the Israelites have a lot of problems. But what's fascinating about the book of Judges as you read through it from start to finish, you, you can be tempted to think why. Why are all these stories here? Uh, stories that are, are, are grotesque and stories that you wouldn't really preach about. But perhaps God is giving us the book of Judges to show us what happens without him. When you don't have God in your life, bad things start to happen. Isn't that true, friends? The degenerate heart, apart from Jesus, begins to go downhill and go downhill fast. And that's what we see happen in the book of Judges. But the good news, we also see in the book of Judges that God, despite Israel's falling away from him, despite their going after other gods, despite their committing spiritual fornication, despite those things, God was still chasing after Israel and saying, I need you to fulfill your purpose. I have a plan for you. 
and he continued to give them hope. We see a pattern in the book of Judges. The Israelites would get into idolatry. They would start falling. They would start going after other gods. They would start intermarrying with other people groups. All these problems start happening, and they would realize that they would cry out to God, God, please help us. And so God would help them. He would send a judge, and they would be delivered from their enemies. But then they'd start going back into that same pattern again. And so God would allow an enemy to come in and oppress them. And they would cry out to God, God, please help us. And God would help them and send another deliverer that would aid them. Do you believe, friends, that God is a merciful God? He's a merciful God. And these lessons in Scripture are for our, are for our, our education. They're there to show us not just what to do, but what not to do. And we, we, we don't want to spiritualize these stories, particularly these bad ones, and say, oh, Everything that Samson did was great. Everything that Gideon did was great. There were redeeming moments in their lives. But there were some things that happened in their lives that we can learn lessons from of what not to do. And that's what we want to be talking about today is the story of of Gideon. Gideon was, and still is, one of my favorite stories growing up. Such an incredible story of, of faith and how God led. Just 300 men taking on the entire enemy army. But there's also some lessons in the life of Gideon that show us what happens when we're on a mountaintop, Satan wants to drag us down. So I invite you to turn with me uh, just there to Judges chapter 1. And we find in the book of Judges that there were 12 different judges. Now, if you read the story of Judges, you you might find 13. And the reason why is you could possibly add King Abimelech in there. Now, Abimelech technically is not considered one of the judges of Israel. You read about his life, and the Bible doesn't say that he judged Israel. They simply said that he ruled Israel for just a few years. He was one of Gideon's sons from a, a concubine, and he ended up taking over and killing almost all of Gideon's sons, 70 of them, but one of them ended up escaping. It was a wicked man. And so there's 12 judges, but, but, but also this one king. You can say there's 13, but, but, but it's essentially 12 of them. And what's fascinating is that as you read the first half of these judges, Othniel and Ehud and Shamgar and Deborah, and, and then Gideon, the first part of these judges at least the first few, they do good things. There, there's not quite as much, well, you know what, they really struggled. I mean, when you read about Shamgar and Ehud and Othniel, the Bible doesn't give us a lot of information about these judges. These first four judges, Deborah gives us some more information, but there's not a lot of negative information about them. But then the rest of the book, there's a lot of, of negative. Yes, there's some redeeming moments like with Samson, but a lot of these judges Unfortunately, even though God used them, there, there were some bad moments in their lives. As you read the story of, of Judges and, and read the book of Judges, you find this seemingly chiastic pattern. This is not original myself, but I was, as I was reading one day about Judges, I, I found it interesting that the Bible uh, seems to highlight some of these judges and compare them with each other. I'm sure that many of us have heard that word, chiastic structure or a chiasm. Uh, For those that haven't, specifically in Hebrew 
poetry, there's a certain literary pattern that a lot of Hebrew authors followed. It often followed an A-B-B-A pattern. So they would say something in the beginning and then something like an A and a B, and then they would say the same thing, but they would reverse the order. And let me show you a couple uh, examples here. Uh, and we're going to find that there's uh, this Hebrew chiastic structure in the book of, of Judges as well. And that simply in the, in the story of the Genesis flood narrative, a lot of scholars, including the Adventist one, uh, have seen a chiastic structure. So the story begins and ends with similar information about Noah and his sons. And then all of it uh, uh, corresponds down to the very middle uh, section where God remembers Noah. And that's the, the highlight of the story. You see, in English thought and literature, often the end is the most exciting, right? We save the best for last, and there's this climax toward the end, and we're used to stories resolving uh, in some way. And wow, that's great. I can't believe that happened, but it happens at the end. But often in, in Hebrew mindset, the, the best part was in the middle. It came up toward the middle, and then it decrescendoed after that. Um, let, let me show you. You can turn your Bibles quickly here to, to uh, the book of, of Joel. You can keep your hand there in Judges, but Joel chapter 3. Joel chapter 3, and notice 17, and also through 21. We're not going to read the whole thing, but look there in, in verse 17, the first part. It says, so you shall know that I am the Lord thy God. That's the first part of verse 17. God dwells in Zion. So you shall know that I'm the Lord your God dwelling in Zion. In my holy mountain. And then if you go over to 21b, notice the very last part of verse 21, where does the Lord dwell? In Zion, right? Look there in uh, 17b, so the second half of 17, it says, Jerusalem shall be, what's that word in Joel 3:17? Jerusalem shall be holy, right? And they are preserved in a sense. And then if you look at verse 20, it talks about Jerusalem. Judah shall abide forever, and Jerusalem from generation to generation just to, again, briefly show you, and kind of the, the middle section here of this chiasm is verse 18, talking about how it'll come to pass in that day that the mountains shall drip with new wine, the hills shall flow with milk, all the, all the blessings that will happen when God is involved. When, when Jesus comes and sets up his kingdom, there's going to be all these, these blessings. So, so hopefully that briefly illustrates, and we could look at a lot of other passages uh, in Scripture, um, and, and even the book of Revelation, we find this in the New Testament as well. A lot of uh, Revelation scholars have seen a chiastic pattern in the Revelation, and the middle, chapters 11 through 14, showcase this great conflict between God and Satan, between the forces of good and evil, and that's kind of the highlight, the, the middle section, the crowning point of the book of, of, of Revelation. Uh, we also are going to find that it's very possible that the author of Judges uh, wrote this book uh, in an intentional chiastic structure to show us something. We're going to find that the judge Othniel and Samson have some similarities. We're going to find that Ehud and Jephthah had some similarities. That Deborah and the, the wicked uh, king Abimelech had some similarities. Uh, but that the author of Judges intentionally chooses to make Gideon the middle point. And even in Gideon's life, there's something in the beginning and end of his life that are very different that I believe uh, God wants to show us today. Uh, let's go ahead and turn back to Judges. There we are. And let's look for a moment about Othniel and study uh, his life, who he was. Judges chapter 1, and notice here uh, in verse 12, Caleb said, whoever attacks, this is Judges chapter 1, 
Verse 12, Caleb said, whoever attacks Kirjoth-Sephar and takes it to him, I will give my daughter Aksa as wife. Verse 13, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, Othniel was Caleb's nephew, his younger brother's son, rose his hand, and he ended up having the courage to conquer this place that, that Caleb said, we need to conquer this, and so Caleb, as the father-in-law, kept his promise and ended up giving his daughter to Othniel. Do you see that there in Judges chapter 1? I think that it is important to note here, the Bible makes it very plain that there is value in choosing a spouse that believes what you believe. That's why Paul talks about not being unequally yoked. And I'm thankful here that, that Othniel recognized that and said, I'm not going to marry someone from a, a different nation. I'm not going to marry someone from a different land that's not an Israelite. I'm going to marry someone that believes in God that's an Israelite. And so he takes Aksa, his wife, and we, we see later on in the story, and you actually can go ahead and turn there, uh, chapter 3, um, Chapter 3, and notice this in verse 9, it says, When the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the children of Israel, who delivered them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord delivered him. And, and then notice verse 11. After Othniel's conquering of these oppressors of the Israelites, the Bible says in verse 11, The land had what? Rest for how long? Forty years. Praise God that after Othniel's leadership that the Israelites had rest and didn't struggle as much as a whole as a nation with idolatry for 40 years. Everything rises and falls on leadership, friends. Isn't that true? And when God's people, when they are leading the way and, and, and they are standing true for truth and, and who God is, then people will follow that. The land had rest for 40 years. Remember in this uh, chiastic structure that the Bible compares Othniel to Samson, and, and, and we see some interesting similarities. Um, but we just looked at Othniel. Uh, he was given a, a, a wife named Aksa, and the influence of the wife was, was positive. If you read about uh, Aksa in the book of Judges, you find that, some of you remember this story, she went up to uh, Caleb, and she said, can I please uh, have you know, this particular area? Can I have this field? Can I have this land? And, and, and Caleb granted that request. So, so she was wanting to conquer. She had courage and said, you know what? God's going to help us conquer. So she had a positive influence on, on Othniel. The action of the father-in-law, the action of the father-in-law was that he kept his promise, right? Caleb actually gave daughter uh, to Othniel uh, as a wife. And, and that was a, a promise that he had made. He had said, if anyone conquers this land, I'm going to give you Aksa uh, as a wife. And, and that actually happened. He kept his promise. Othniel's relationship to God was, was good. He ruled Israel 40 years. They had rest. And overall, we, we don't see anything negative in Scripture. Well, when you compare that to the last judge, while Samson had some redeeming moments, did Samson marry an Israelite? No. Did his heart long for a righteous woman in his life? Unfortunately not. He went after and had eyes for a Philistine woman from Timnah. And that was an issue in Samson's life, wasn't it? That continually brought him down. And the influence of his wife was not positive. The influence of Samson's wife was to give him in, to betray him to the enemy. Whereas the influence of Othniel's wife was the opposite. Say, hey, we gotta conquer more for God. But Samson's wife was completely different. And notice the action of the father-in-law of Samson. Remember that Samson 
went down to, you know, he married this lady and, and went down and said, hey, where is she? And the father-in-law said, well, I gave her away. So he didn't keep his promise, did he? The exact opposite of what, of what Caleb did. Relationship to God during this time was, was not good, ruled Israel for a shorter period of time. And if you look at the end of, of Judges, it doesn't say that, that Israel had rest for a certain amount of years. In fact, only the first four Judges does the Bible say that Israel had rest. The land had rest for a certain amount of time. After Gideon, it doesn't say that any longer. So it seems like Gideon is this deciding point uh, with Israel's future. And after Gideon, Israel continued to go downhill. Ehud and Jephthah, different parts of the book of Judges, but they're paired together. There's a lot of similarities between their story. Again, we're not spending a lot of time looking at all these details, reading all these verses. Uh, Ehud was a, was a, had a, a positive impact, very much so, on, on the Israelites. Um, he ended up uh, going in. And this was, as a kid, one of my favorite stories. You know, here's this left-handed guy, and he came in and, and killed uh, King Eglon, the, the king of, of Moab, snuck in there. The Moabites uh, oppressed the Israelites for 18 years. Now, the, the fascinating thing about that is that Amnon, they oppressed Israel for 18 years. So you see a lot of similarities between these two judges. You, you find also that they both send the king a message. You find that the Jordan River both involved in these stories, you can see, friends, that the author clearly is trying to pair these two together with the idea of when we get to Gideon, there's a message that he has for the, the, the reader. Obviously, there's some difference because uh, Ehud, he ended up ruling Israel for how long? 80 years. Israel had rest for 80 years, the longest rest they had under a judge in the book of Judges. He brought unity to God's people. And friends, that's what we need in our church today. Isn't it? We need people that bring us together, not under apostasy, not under error, but under truth. And I believe that God used Ehud in a, in a positive way. And you can see all of the language surrounding him in just uh, the short amount of verses that we have. It, it was positive. Whereas Jephthah, very different. Um, he ends up allowing the enemy to cross the Jordan River, whereas Ehud doesn't allow the enemy to cross. He only rules Israel for a short amount of time and overall has a, a negative impact on Israel. The last two rulers that book of Judges highlights is Deborah and Abimelech. Deborah was the only female judge in the book of, of Judges, uh, but under her leadership, the Israelites are united. And again, as a, a, a little boy, fascinated by the story of Deborah and, and how she ended up destroying the oppressors by taking a tent peg and, and crushing the enemy's head, Something that's important to remember, friends, is that when we're reading these stories, God doesn't want us to always emulate everything that's in Scripture, right? So young people, don't try to destroy your friend with a, a, a tent peg. You know, these are some dark moments in Israel's history, uh, but God still uses uh, some of their fallen nature. The person that ends up crushing the enemies is a woman uh, named Jael, and, and overall, it's a, it's a positive uh, message. But then Abimelech, very negative. Uh, as I was, again, studying Abimelech this, uh, this week, I was reminded of, of you know, uh, how terrible of a, of a person he was. And under his leadership, Israelites are very divided. You know, he's basically uh, going to the Canaanites because his mom was a concubine and she was a Canaanite and, and saying, hey, listen, I'm part Canaanite and I'm part uh, Israel. Like, let's, you know, let, let, let me rule. I'd be the best ruler and ends up killing uh, all of uh, brothers, essentially. But again, there's some similarities uh, between the story, a couple of them. One is that just as a, a woman ends up crushing the enemy's head, 
uh, a woman ends up dropping a rock. Do you remember the part of that story? Abimelech is uh, near a, a fortress, and a woman ends up crashing, uh, throwing a rock on his head, ends up shattering uh, his skull. But overall, very negative uh, uh, picture. So we find some similarities between uh, those two. Uh, and that leaves us uh, there at, at Gideon. Again, I believe that God is drawing our attention to the story of Gideon to show why do the Israelites start going downhill even more after Gideon, and what can we learn from that today? So let's go to Judges chapter 6, but let's talk about Gideon for just a moment. Judges chapter 6. The Midianites had begun to oppress Israel. They oppressed Israel for some time. In verse 1 of chapter 6, the Bible says, And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian for how many years? Seven years, and the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel. Because of the Midianites, the children of Israel made for themselves the dens, the caves, and the strongholds which are in the mountains. Wow. So they actually had to flee for the country. They had to flee for places out in nature because they were being oppressed so much. We see that later in the story of Gideon where he's, you know, at the threshing floor, but he's trying to do it in a a way where he's hiding what he's doing because he doesn't want the Midianites uh, to see him. God ends up going to Gideon and saying, I need you, right? An angel comes and, and shows up and Gideon is afraid. He says, oh, I, you know, I, I, who, who are you and, and, and are, are you really going to, to use me? Look at, look at verse 11. We'll read about it. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree, which was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abrazite, while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, the Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. Praise the Lord that Gideon was someone that God considered a mighty man of valor. I want God to say that about me. How about you, friends? That we are people of of strength and courage. And Gideon was someone that God considered just that. Verse 13, Gideon said to him, Oh, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? Wait, Lord, you're showing up right now? Why are we going through all of these bad things. Where are all his miracles which our fathers told us about, saying, did, did not the Lord bring us out of Egypt? Now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us in the hand of the Midianites. Verse 14, and the Lord turned to him and said, go in this might of yours and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? You can imagine how Gideon would have felt when an angel showed up at his door and gave him a task. There would have been fear. There would have been discouragement. Am I the right person? Isn't it true, friends, that an angel has showed up and given us a task to Seventh-day Adventists? Three of them, in fact. Three angels that flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel with them to share with the whole world, and, and they're shouting, saying, please, earth, give out these messages. Angels are giving us messages to share with people as well to to conquer souls for Jesus. And we can have the same experience and and reaction that Gideon does. Lord, me? I I don't have the education. I don't have the eloquence. I, I don't have the faith. And God is a lot more interested in our willingness than our qualifications. God is a lot more interested in our desire to serve him and our willingness to be used than he is the qualifications that we have. God I'm so thankful, uh, qualifies his call. He doesn't call the qualified. Isn't that true, friends? And so Gideon uh, goes out, finally says, okay, Lord, I'm, I'm gonna follow you. And, and one of the first things that God 
asks Gideon to do is this. Verse 25. Now it came to pass the same night that the Lord said to him, take your father's young bull, the second bull of seven years old, and tear down the altar of Baal that your who has? Your father has and cut down the wooden image that is beside it. Gideon's dad was worshiping idols, was worshiping Baal. Now we obviously know looking back that that is not a positive thing. We know what happens to the Israelites when they worship idols. And we see right here in the very beginning that Gideon's own father in the house of Gideon was idol worship. People saying, God is not our God. We would rather turn to these gods of wood and stone. We trust in them and not the true living God. And God knew that in order for Israel to be successful, the idols had to go. In order for Israel to fully trust that it was not Baal who delivered them from the Midianites, but that it was the God Almighty of the universe, in order for them to know that he knew that Baal had to be out of the picture. And so he asked Gideon, I want you to go in and I want you to cut down your father's statue. Verse 26. And in place of it, because you can't just take away what Satan has brought, you have to replace it with something, don't you? Build an altar, verse 26. This is chapter 6 of Judges, verse 26. And build an altar to the Lord, your God, on top of this rock in the proper arrangement and take the second bull and offer a burnt sacrifice with the wood of the image which you shall cut down. Burn up the very idol and use it as fuel for the sacrifice that I want you to give me. Verse 27, does Gideon follow through with what God had asked? He does. He took 10 men from among his servants and did as the Lord had said to him. Friends, don't we want that to be written about us. God asks us to go to North Carolina and we'll go. God asks us to go to California and we'll go. God asks us to go to Thailand and we'll go. God asks us to go to our neighbor with a great converse and we go. God asks us to share a smile and a loaf of bread with uh, the person that lives across from us and we go. God asks us to talk to the person at the store. You get the point. I want to be someone when God asks us to do something, we do it, friends. But notice verse 27. He feared his father's household and the men of the city too much to do it by day, so he did it by night. What's going to happen? Verse 28, when the men of the city arose early in the morning. So this is not just, notice this, the men of the city are noticing that something's awry, that something's different. This is not just an, an idol that just was part of Gideon's family. This was something that a lot of people came to and worship. There was the altar of Baal torn down and the wooded image that was beside it was cut down. And the second bowl was being offered on the altar which had been built. And they said to one another, who has done this thing? And when they inquired and asked, Somebody spilled the beans. Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. These men get real angry. Who does Gideon think that he is? Bring him to us, that he may die. They, they want to kill Gideon because he's cut down the wooden image. But thankfully, someone stands in the gap, and Joash said to all who stood against him, this is Gideon's dad, would you plead for Baal? Would you save him? Let the one who plead for him be put to death by morning. If he is a God, let him plead for himself because his altar has been torn down. That's a good answer. Hey, if he really is a God, let him plead for himself. Let him argue for himself. Let him protect himself. If he's, if he's actually a God, then he has the ability to protect himself. Thankfully, Gideon's dad and his words and his wisdom allowed the men of the city to reason and rationalize and say, you know what? He's right. Let's back off. We also, friends, need to be people that stand in the gap for others. And if we see injustice about to be done, not being afraid to do something about it. 
Well, we won't go through the rest of the story, but we know it very well. Where Gideon ends up getting an army, and at first it's, you know, he thinks there's not going to be enough, and then even God says, no, let's just keep on whittling it down and whittling it down and whittling it down, and, and finally there's only 300 people in Gideon's army. And they end up with pitchers and trumpets and torches, ends up conquering the Midianites. Not through conventional means, because God is not a, a God of conventionality. He's not a God who does the same thing. He has a thousand ways to solve our problems, friends. And God does just that with the Midianites. But after the battle, after the battle, after the victory, after God had used Gideon in a mighty way, the devil steps in. Because often when we're at our peak, he knows this is the time. Because this is what happened to Israel, right? In the book of Joshua, they conquered all these nations and then they begin to relax a little bit. You know what? I'm okay. Hey, it's all right. And that's when Israel began to get into idolatry and we're gonna find the same thing happens with Gideon. As he's at the top of his spiritual game, God has used him. He says, yes, Lord, thank you for using me. And he comes down out of that and unfortunately begins to relax his awareness. He begins to, to lack a, a firmness of, of, of principle. Gideon ends up doing the very thing that God had asked him not to do. So look there in chapter 8. It's at the end of Gideon's story. Chapter 8 and verse 22. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, rule over us, both you and your son and your grandson also, for you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon said to them, I'm not going to rule over you, nor my son will rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. Right? He's humble. Praise the Lord. Then Gideon said to them, I would like to make a request, though, of you, that each of you would give me the earrings from his plunder. For they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. So the answer will gladly give them. And they spread out a garment, and each man threw it into the earrings from his plunder. Now the weight of the gold earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold. It's a lot. Besides the crescent ornaments, pendants, purple robes, which were on the kings of Midian, and besides the chains that were around their camels' necks. The Midianites were a wealthy country. And the Israelites, as they defeated the Midianites, end up taking all of the splendor, end up taking all of the, the things of the Midianites and bringing them back and saying they're ours now and, and getting requests them, but not for a good purpose. Verse 27. Then Gideon made it into a what? An ephod and set up in his city, Ophrah. Gideon took all of the jewelry, all of the things that the Israelites had plundered, and ends up making it into ephod. Now, to remind us, what is an ephod? An ephod was the shoulder dress of the high priest. They had the two onk stones that bore the 12 names of, of the tribes of Israel on them. And so here, as you read Spirit of Prophecy, you begin to get a little more information that Gideon begins to think to himself, you know what? When God first called me, he asked me, to sacrifice, and so I'm like a priest. And he begins to think to himself, you know, I'm going to make an ephod, this gold, beautiful ephod, and, 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 and we're going to uh, replace, you know, the, the, the worship that God has set up with this. And notice, friends, verse 27, the second half. It says, all Israel played the what? The harlot with it there. And it became a snare to Gideon and to his house. All of Israel played the harlot with it there, and it came, became a snare to Gideon and to his house and to all of Israel. So this ephod that he made and built from the things that they had taken from the Midianites ends up becoming and replacing the true worship of God. And as all of Israel begins to, they had, were prone to idolatry and said, wow, look at this ephod, this is amazing. And it essentially, they started worshiping the creation rather than the creator. And even though Gideon began 
his ministry strong, doing what God had asked him, following through, like all of us, was subject to temptation and ends up falling prey to idolatry. Notice what we're told here in the books, Patriarchs and Prophets. Because he had been commanded to offer sacrifice upon the rock where the angel appeared to him, Gideon concluded that he had been appointed to officiate as a priest. Without waiting for the divine sanction, he determined to provide a suitable place and to institute a system of worship similar to that carried on at the tabernacle. So Gideon was both positive and negative, wasn't he? The the prior judges to, to him were all positive. Othniel, Ehud, Deborah, and even some that aren't mentioned. And then Gideon begins positive, but ends up being negative overall. And then the rest of the judges are negative, overall influence. And could it be, friends, that God is wanting to highlight to us today part of the reason for Israel's downfall was Gideon's decision as a leader to participate in idolatry. That is what ended up making the difference. Now, as, as we think for just a moment about idolatry, and we, and we think about Scripture, as I read through the Old Testament over and over again, the Israelites are struggling with this thing called idolatry, and it's tempting for me I remember as a kid growing up, you know, and seeing these pictures of, of the Israelites bowing down to this, you know, uh, uh, image of, of a cow. And, and we read the same stories to our kids, and our kids ask the same questions. You know, what, what's an idol? We, we, we can't necessarily comprehend what they went through because today I, I doubt that if I came to your house, maybe, but I doubt that I would find there on your coffee table or up on your, your piano or, or somewhere up high this, this beautiful golden cow and, and you worship it on a regular basis. Probably not. My guess is that's not a, a temptation for you. But if idolatry was such a big issue for the Israelites, if it led to the downfall of Israel through Gideon's influence, there's gotta be an application for us today. What are the idols in our lives that are taking us down the wrong path? And if I ask that question, we could probably come up with a lot of of easy answers. But allow us for just a minute to reflect on what an idol is from the pages of Spirit of Prophecy. Here we're told the signs of the times, January 26, 1882, that anything which tends to abate our love for God or to interfere with the service do him becomes thereby an idol. When I was living in California, I would often, uh, as summer was approaching, as things began to heat up, so you're going into the month of June and, and, and July, you would often see signs up in, in different places that said weed abatement services. My California friends, have you seen those signs before? Weed abatement services. There would be people who would recognize that there'd be some rain in California, some winters more than others. This last winter, California got a lot of rain. But because of that rain, it would produce a lot of growth. There'd be a lot of green. There'd be a lot of grass. But then because of the heat, that grass would need to be done away with because there is the threat of fires in California. And so a lot of uh, people that own tractors and, you know, uh, things like that would, would say, hey, we'll mow your fear field, we'll abate your weeds, weed abatement. We don't use that word too often, but the word means to reduce. We want to take the high weeds and we want to abate them, we want to hold them back, we want to lessen them, diminish them, reduce them. And anything that abates our love for God, that reduces 
our love for him or interferes with the service due him becomes an idol. Let's read another one. Anything that diverts the mind from God assumes the form of an idol. And she concludes, that's why there's so little power in the church today. Why are we in the Laodicean condition that we are in? Why are there not more baptisms and more soul winning than is happening? Why are there so many uh, uh, addictions and things that we're struggling? Why is there so little power in the church today because of idolatry? Anything that diverts the mind from God. Let's read a couple more here. God has given us many things in this life upon which to bestow our affections. God has given us things which to bestow our affections. We should. Should we bestow our affections upon our family? Yes. Should we bestow our affections upon his church and the church family? Yes. But notice this, friends. Even that which God gives us can become an idol. Because when we carry to excess that which in itself is lawful, we become idolater. Anything that separates our affections from God and lessens our interest in spiritual things or eternal things is an idol. One more. God will not share a divided heart. If the world absorbs our attention, he cannot reign supreme. If this diminishes our devotion for God, it is idolatry in his eye. So notice all these words, friends, that we're told in the spirit of prophecy. Anything that abates, interferes with our love for God, diverts our attention from God to other things, separates us from God, lessens or diminishes. And those words were, really struck me because there's a lot of things that are good things. Praise God. Can the iPad be used as a tool for God? Yes. You'll see myself or Pastor Wright or others using it up here, having our sermon notes. They're a good thing. Our smartphones can be a gift. They can translate things to share the gospel with other people. They can be used to send encouraging messages to other people. There's a lot of good things. But the very thing that maybe God has given us can also lessen our love for God. I remember when I was a student at Southern Adventist University. Being there on campus, I had just gotten you know, a, a cell phone, but it certainly wasn't a, a smartphone as those were not popular or very much around, I remember carrying with me a pocket Bible. And I would carry around this pocket Bible and I'd be waiting in line there to eat at Southern's cafeteria and I'd pull out my pocket Bible and read a little bit. And then I would be waiting for something else and I would pull out my pocket Bible. I'd be walking to class, pull out my pocket Bible. And even though our phones have the capacity to do that very thing, isn't it true, friends, if we're honest with ourselves, that those very devices can lessen our desire to be with God and study scripture. Because how many times, if I'm honest, how many times have I opened up that phone and, and said, you know what, yeah, I'll read scripture, but let me check my email, let me check my text messages. Those little red dots with the numbers, they're my enemy. Oh, that's a notification, let me, let me check that. So many things, friends, that can lessen or diminish our love for God. Church can become an idol, friends. Maybe it isn't for you. But I have known people in times where myself where you get so sucked into everything that's happening and you want people's approval rather than God's approval. I just need to do this. They've asked me to do it even though I don't have any time. They've asked me. The pastor just, Pastor Jeff just called me and said, can you do this please? It could be a lot of things, friends. But my question for you is what is lessening and diminishing your love for God? For a lot of us, it's appetite. It's food. Can diminish our love for God as we begin to follow our stomachs rather than the Holy Spirit. Maybe it's a substance. Maybe it's alcohol. Saying, you know what? This is 
caught me up and I, and I care more about this than anything else. And, and, and I think a lot of us deep down know that there's an idol in my life. A lot of us deep down know. And the question is, how can we get rid of it? How can we reduce the idols and increase our love for God? That is the question, friends. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Hosea. Hosea chapter 14. Hosea chapter 14, the Bible says, O Israel, O Hendersonville, Seventh Avenue Church, O Jeff, put your name in there, return to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take words with you and return to the Lord, says to him, take away all iniquity. Say to him, take away all iniquity. Receive us graciously, for we will offer the sacrifices of our lips. Or if you have the King James, it says the the calves, the cows of our lips. In other words, Father, please receive us graciously. We won't be caught up anymore in in thinking about our sacrifices, but we'll offer you the sacrifices of our lips. Return to God. I believe, friends, that the first step to getting rid of something that is lessening God's love in your life that is diminishing a desire to read the Bible is to simply go to him and say, God, I'm returning to you. Return to him. It's simple, but just return to him. Say, God, I am sorry and I'm returning to you. Over and over, God appeals to the Israelites, return to me, return to me. And the reason, friends, that we need to return to God is because idols promise everything, but they can't deliver. We're going to come back here to Hosea 14, so put your hand there, put a marker there, but I invite you to turn with me to the book of Psalms. Psalms 115, just briefly here. Psalms 115. The Bible says in verse 4, Psalms 115, verse 4, their idols are silver and gold, the works of men's hands. They have mouths, but they don't speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses they have, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. Feet they have, but they do not walk. Nor do they mutter through their throats. Idols promise a lot. When we are feeling discouraged in our hearts, and we say, you know what? I'm, I, I, I'm having you know, a, a anxiety right now. I'm worried right now. Instead of going straight to God, who's the only one that can solve our problems, and we run to so many things. We, we are great escape artists, aren't we, friends? Just like Adam and Eve. When they messed up, they ran from God. And sometimes that is our first reaction when we make a mistake, when, when there's shame or guilt in our lives or we do something wrong or we're going after a, a temptation. We, we run from God the opposite direction. We try to fill it with things that we think will satisfy us. Television, our phones, food, alcohol, whatever it may be. But at the end of the day, friends, we know very well, the Bible tells us that though idols promise everything, they don't deliver. They don't work. The world promises that it'll give you so much more. I was reading one individual, a a pastor, he said, are you lonely? Do you need connection? AT&T will help you. Reach out and touch someone. Do you question your value? Then use L'Oreal, because I'm worth it, they say. Do you long to be something more than you currently are? Then join the U.S. Army, whose slogan is be all that you can be. Do you want to stand out in the crowd and watch CNN International who says, be the first to know? Do you desire freedom? Then watch Showtime. Its tagline is no limits. Do you want something that you can depend on in an emergency? Well, it's an American Express, which says don't leave home without it. 
Do you want to experience the ultimate in life? Then drive BMW because it's the ultimate driving machine. Not just a car, a driving machine. The world promises it all, friends, but it can't deliver. If we were to read that psalm again, Psalm 115, we could say the idols have ears, but they can't hear your cries for love. The idols have eyes, but they can't see your needs for acceptance. The idols have feet, but they can't walk by your side. They have hands, but they can't hold you when you're lonely. They promise so much, but they don't work. Idols don't work, friends. Going to our temptations and addictions and the things that lessen our love for God just don't work. And they cause us to do things that we don't want to do. Has there been anyone here that has found themselves scrolling through social media when you have a lot of other things to do? Has there been anyone here that has stayed up watching television when you know you should be getting sleep? They make you do things you don't want to do. I heard about a woman who entered the haagen ice cream store on the Kansas City Plaza. She went in there for an ice cream cone and looking over the various selections and made her choice. And while waiting for her ice cream, she suddenly found herself face-to-face with the one and only movie star, Paul Newman. He was in town filming the movie Mr. and Mrs. Bridge, and she was staring, uh, staring into his steely blue eyes. Newman smiled and said hello, and this woman's knees began to quiver. Can't believe he's actually looking at me, she thought. She managed to pay for her ice cream cone and leave the shop with her heart pounding. She just saw Paul Newman. Outside, after regaining composure, she realized that she had forgotten her ice cream. So she goes back into the store, and she meets Newman, who's still there, and he says, are you looking for your ice cream? She nods, still unable to speak, and Newman says, you put it in your purse with your change. (laughs) My point, friends, my point. And although it's a humorous story, isn't it true, friends, that idols cause us to do things we don't want to do? How many times has one of your idols and mine idols caused me to do something I don't want to do? To waste sleep, to ignore God's health loss, to ignore my family and their needs. Because I think that that thing is going to provide what I need to meet my longings. And the fact of the matter is that idols don't work, friends. They promise so much, but they can't deliver. And the only one that can deliver is Jesus. The only one that won't cause you to do silly things is Jesus. The only one that will keep you on the straight and narrow is God. Wrapping up, Hosea 14. Are you back there yet? Hosea 14, let's return there. Last verse, last verse. Verse four is a beautiful verse. And after the author of Hosea, Hosea himself is writing, ask God to receive us graciously. Here's what God says in verse four. I will heal their backsliding. Friends, idolatry is a disease that only can be healed by the master physician, Jesus. I will love them freely. Idolatry promises love. It promises the world, but it can't deliver. But God can. God will love them freely. My anger has turned away from him. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall grow like the lily and lengthen his roots like Lebanon. Skipping down to verse 9, who is wise? Let him understand these things. Who is prudent? Let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, 
The righteous walk in them, but the transgressors stumble in them. Friends, I want to invite you today to return to God. I want to invite you today, like getting at the beginning of his life, to cast down your idol. If that means getting rid of your smartphone or your television, do it, friends. If that means having someone be an accountability partner for you, do it, friends. But I believe that God is desiring us to cast out anything that diminishes or lessens our love for God so that we can return fully to him. And as we turn to him, God says, I will love you freely. I will love you freely. I will heal your backslidings.